0: All right, we're very happy to be here this afternoon with Caroline Secott here at the Scalia Law School. Caroline researches environmental, administrative law, and regulatory theory. She has published a lot about the uh, energy trade offs associated with hydraulic fracturing, both some of the benefits that come with fracturing, and some of uh, the downsides in terms of uh, externalities and impacts on local communities. And so today we're going to talk about two of our fascinating pieces. The first was published in Environmental Law, and it's an empirical study of the reasons that some localities, towns, et cetera, in New York placed moratoria and bans On hydraulic fracturing and then we'll move on to a piece that she did in the Texas A&M law review that was looking at what would be better approaches perhaps to addressing some of the water quality impacts of fracking. So Caroline thank you so much for being here today.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: If you could just start by talking about that article, that you uh, empirical study that you did in environmental law on New York's approach to fracking.
1: So absolutely. So shale development in general is an interesting problem because it's something that at least given what we currently know about its risk and if it's done reasonably is likely net beneficial from an aggregate welfare perspective. So that means that we might all be better off, especially if natural gas replaces coal, et cetera. Um, But there are, of course, groups that stand to gain more, and then some groups that stand to gain less. So the latter groups might bear more of the cost of shale development, which tends to be very locally felt. Um, Some of these might get royalty payments, some might not. So it's this interesting big picture question of what do we do with that kind of inequality? Do we coerce some groups to bear these costs for the benefit of all, with or without compensation, or do we let them opt out? But what's interesting is that there are also uncertainties about some of the different risks. Water contamination risks have emerged as highly salient, both to experts, and they're usually thinking about risk of surface spills that come with any drilling, but just the increased scope makes those more likely, the magnitude and the harm. And but, but then also communities concerned about migration of methane into drinking water or other chemicals, especially the chemicals that are used in the fracking fluids themselves and how they might uh, migrate. And we don't have a lot of data that that latter aspect is happening, but that also is sort of a lagged effect. So it might take time for those uh, things to happen. So um, this... Uncertainty can lead to sort of potentially unwarranted fear and speculation and then an aversion and rejection. So then it's easy to discredit these local movements as totally speculative or fear based or science based. So there's been some earlier research kind of putting these fracking opposition groups into the overall NIMBY category, not in my backyard. Um, so we don't want this here. And these are, uh, this kind of concern you usually looked down upon, is usually associated with things where. The science does not bear out increased risks, or, or we don't want to credit this. There's something like cell phone towers uh, and concerns, perceived concerns about some kind of health risk, even though the scientific evidence sort of disputes that. This might lead us to want to ignore these movements as just fear-based and speculative, etc. Um, but it's possible that there's that there's something there that they're bringing out um, some real concerns about this and um so both of these articles are in that vein one uh, to see if there's actually a concern that some of these uh risks are not being properly investigated or that there's not likely to be either the adequate uh, ca- uh precautions taken because liability regulatory or private uh, enforcement through tort regime is not catching up um and uh that this then leads to this Opposition that's actually not based on we just don't like this because it's in our backyard, but really based uh, tied to some of these increased risks. So the environmental law piece um, focuses on that latter question. So I'm looking at a period of time in which New York State had created a moratorium on fracking Uh, to do some health studies. So that was ongoing in the background. But in the meantime, localities were deciding whether to ban or or enact their own moratorium, a short-term ban um, on the practice. And what I find is that the towns that were uh, likely to um, enact bans on fracking uh, given the potential for New York State to uh, have fracking in the future, those are the towns that had that were the most vulnerable to water contamination risks. So these are the towns where more of their population relied on private water wells, wells that aren't independently regulated for water quality um, that had to do their own testing. These were also towns um, that use more water for livestock, etc. Um, and then, you know, and other predictors that you know, you would expect that makes sense, that are sort of in line with the fact that maybe individuals are thinking about these costs and benefits, that differential, and that maybe doing something about that could reduce some opposition. So the more percentage of folks in the town that actually live in their homes, as opposed to, you know, living elsewhere and just kind of renting, more opposition to fracking. Because, again, if you're there and you locally feel these effects, and so... Surprisingly, uh, or not surprisingly, uh, the results are consistent with a cost-benefit story, that this is actually what motivates folks. The towns that actually had these increased risks... um, were the ones that were likely to enact bans. No, that were
0: driven by water quality. Yeah, so yeah, in some right. ways, you know, and as you emphasize it, which I think is a very important part of the article, this suggests that this is not simply an undifferentiated concern about nimbyism or don't, not wanting any development. It's a concern about specific issues. And, you know, perhaps... There could be imperfect information about what the risks are of fracking with respect to water quality, et cetera, but it seems to be a sincere concern about water quality, at least to the extent that it's associated with places that are more dependent on water quality. And in turn, that suggests that further research on the impacts of fracking on water quality or better regulation to protect water quality could have could move the needle in terms of uh, winning broad, broader support for this kind of activity.
1: That's exactly right. It is based on, it, it's sort of the perception of this. Uh, but, but the fact is that they're responding to this. So one thing that I should mention sort of on the other side, so I've been focusing on this increased cost, um, but I have these other variables that looked at a little bit of the history of drilling in those towns. And what's interesting is that towns that had this greater history of drilling were less likely to um, enact the bans. And that's also consistent with um, a cost-benefit story in the sense that they have the more ex- more experience about this. So to the extent there's a perception of what the actual risks of this kind of intense drilling in the area are, um, those are the towns that sort of were able to um, appreciate it based on their history. So maybe their perception sort of in line with what actually would happen. Uh, while the towns that have less experience with this, they're less able to sort of predict and might be concerned about some of these costs, too. So you had uh, these sort of effects on both sides. But controlling for history, uh, the water, was an important issue.
0: So let me me ask you about a related issue, because you are somebody who's done a lot of publication in regulatory theory as well. Does your study of these local bans, does it give you a perspective on this decades-long, Fight we've had about should regulation of fracking be done at the local level? Should it be done at the state level? Is it the kind of thing that really should be up to the individual landowner, or the opposite extreme? You know what the kind of federal ban that we have uh, had advocated recently in the primary would that be the best approach, or do you think that multiple of those you know four level of actors taking it from the ground floor of landowner, town, state, federal government should Several of those actors have a veto, or what do you think is the best approach to this kind of question given the different uh, factors that you find in terms of uh, disparate local impact, local knowledge, uh, as well as local and wider benefits?
1: My background sort of comes from an economic perspective, so um, aggregate welfare. Um, so I, it's very persuasive to me to be able to allow us to take action that on net could benefit. So if we decide based on current information that uh, fracking shale development is net beneficial, then I think it should go forward. Uh, But I think it's a separate question about um, how it should go forward and who's in that conversation. So not an opt-out, but go forward, but only go forward if we can get it at the level that costs and benefits that we're maximizing net benefits, right? But how do we do that? Well, part of it is to make sure we have an ongoing dialogue about what the costs are um, that we can so we can compare those to the benefits. Now, who knows about these costs? Well, that's the local groups. They're the ones bearing this cost. So there should be this ongoing dialogue. Um, so actually, it's a great opportunity. So in the other paper that you mentioned, um, that's sort of the starting premise there is that do we have a, given our current regulatory systems in place, and, and not just right, liability systems, insurance systems, so sort of the whole risk management scheme in place, are, do we think that we are adequately taking into account um, the potential costs so that what we see out there is optimal, net beneficial regulation, uh, risk mitigation? Uh, in fracking, right? Is it optimally, responsibly done? And I think we have, the current system is not that, that there's a lot of gaps in the current system.
0: Yeah, and and Caroline, you both anticipated my question. <laughs> and moved very, very, that was a great segue into your other article, which is this Texas A&M article, which I just want to plug because it does a great job of breaking down the different regulatory approaches that one can have and how they apply to the different risks presented by fracking to water quality and so could you tell us just a little bit about what your conclusions are that you draw in terms of those different regulatory approaches and how they might address water issues
1: right so fracking again just going back to something in the beginning there's this component of it that's sort of seen old this is about drilling now it's widespread but there's a lot of stuff that we already know about what drilling causes and what we would be concerned about and uh etc and those are usually have to, have to do with the immediate harms of drilling, the spills, the traffic, the water use, the pollution, et cetera. So, um, and then there's the concern about potential delayed um, effects of fracking in particular, and, and there's, there's a lot more uncertainty. So current evidence suggests that uh, maybe these are overblown concerns, um, but there's still a lot of uncertainty, and it's very relatively new, so the truth is we just haven't had enough time there. So... In, so I take them separately because I think that the system we have in place, if it, even if it's not adequately dealing with the immediate risks, I think it could. It has the potential. So the system that I, what I'm referring to as the system, that's the regulations that we have, that's the insurance liability potential uh, uh, options, and that's uh, liability. So common law tort liability. Um, I can sort of go through all of these separately, but... The immediate risks might be very similar to what we have in regular, vertical, conventional drilling, et cetera. So we can take some of those best practice regulations and apply them in the fracking context and hope that we're setting the optimal uh, standard of care there. Um, Same thing with insurance. If insurance is going to work at all um, as a support for making sure that uh, the parties are aware of costs and actually compensate for any damages that they occur. It's going to work at all. It's going to be for things that insurers have historically been able to deal with. And at least in the environmental context, the kind of insurance that has been promising are the ones that are claims-based. So immediate things that arise during the period, if they're brought up, then insurance can generally deal with this. So um, my suggestions there are we could do a better job of making things clear. So we can try to push um, regulation to be cost-benefit justified and adopt best practices that actually are out there and not all jurisdictions have adopted um, from even the industry. Can you give me a couple
0: examples of, you know, sort of what right, you would so see as best practices or, you know, even if things have come out since the article, that's one one question is there's so much, uh, you offer so much about what a good regulatory system would be and I wonder if there are jurisdictions that you feel like places could look to as a model?
1: So a state that I think is trying to do a good job I, I don't want to uh, promote any one state um, but Pennsylvania has done a number of moves in light of the widespread shale development in the area. So some are statutory changing the presumption in litigation uh, we're we can make the inference that you caused methane to migrate into the water supply if you didn't actually test the water supply beforehand and provide evidence of the baseline right we're going to make that assumption so you can't just get out of it by saying you didn't do this so changing uh those presumptions um uh, creating rules about when how far spaced uh different wells could be and then creating rules about fees that can come back to the local community etc so they're, they've tried to I, I think, uh, again, without looking at what's happened in recent times, I think they're trying to tailor their regulations uh, to the fracking context and doing more. And then you have other states that um, have not thought about this. And, in fact, the r- previous regulations have sort of lagged in a lot of uh, these areas. I don't want to pick on any state, especially uh, without <laughs> having uh, looked into this sort of uh, before. But um, but you don't have states that are mandating insurance coverage or limiting certain operators from being there. You don't have states that are uh, requiring uh, notifications to landowners that fracking will occur in some time period. You don't see uh, all of these. Um, I think in the article I cite, so relatively, uh, it's probably outdated now because I'm looking at it. it's from 2012, uh, but there's, it's actually from the American Petroleum Institute, and it's an overview of the best practices on hydraulic fracturing, and what, what's fascinating there is they, they aren't the practices that are necessarily regulatory adopted. Um, but it shows that there's some pressure internally in the industry to sort of move the ball forward. So even if the regulation is lacking, uh, they have this. But the only way you get that pressure is if that liability system works. And so there's a number of reasons why it might not, so That I highlight in the article. So I think the best role for the state there is to just sort of, create these default rules that will make sure that that functions well uh, to create that pressure for the industry. Because, again, always concerning. I love talking about cost-benefit analysis. It's easy to talk about in the abstract. When we have an industry like this that's very technology innovation, you know, every day they're pushing the envelope. It's difficult to set these static rules. So you do want uh, a robust industry that's looking at ways to minimize harms. Um, and I think you get that with that lit- litigation on on the back end. Just say there is migration of hazardous frack- fracking fluid into water supplies that then lead to harms later on to po- exposed populations. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's enough to just say insurance should cover it. I think historically you see problems with insurance when uh, being able to live up to these when it's sort of this unbounded liability potential. You see people leaving the market, and you don't see it really growing unless there's something else in place, like a cap on damages. But, of course, if there's a cap, then you don't get that um, uh, that same um, signal. tailored signal about the costs and benefits.
0: Yeah, just to take these... All separately. Obviously, there are multiple concerns with Absolutely. fracking and addressing waste uh, and entering drinking water. So one one potential problem is that the fluids that you would pump down the well would migrate to water because a lot of times the actual fracturing is happening at very deep depths and the water table is well protected. I think what EPA has said is that there's not... Widespread evidence of a problem uh, with that causing water contamination, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't happened ever. And then there's, a, there's another concern, which is that once you're producing oil and gas from the well, if the oil and ga- if that well is not isolated from groundwater, that Uh, that oil and gas could leak into groundwater and potentially contaminate it. Uh, And that certainly has happened in the past, in the old days of the oil and gas industry that happened a lot in Pennsylvania had a previous oil and gas boom, so they have some contamination from more than a century ago. Uh, But then the the third thing that Caroline is mentioning is this idea that there is often that uh, produced water or that waste water from fracking, uh, both of those are often stored on the surface, and you know, because of flooding or breaking containment or lots of uh, or simply leaks, they can uh, that can be uh, that can end up in drinking water, which is potentially a serious problem, and that has always been an issue for any uh, for any industry that has stores a lot of wastewater on the surface. And the oil and gas industry is the, certainly one of the biggest.
1: Right, so with, with shale development, at least the size and scope of shale development, you have more of these concerns, and then you might have these concerns that um, these kinds of blowouts, spills, leaks, et cetera, might be linked to latent harms, and people are concerned that's going to have effects in the future uh, to their health, et cetera, and we don't have that much information about that, right? So it's, it's a potential concern, um, and in those kinds of cases, you usually see – Regulators uh, worldwide sort of take potentially two different approaches. One might be called precautionary—that well, until we don't know that it's safe, let's not do this. Right? Has ho- lots of costs. So, podcasts about trade-offs, right? That's that's a huge trade-off. So, any uncertainty, uh, we're going to forego a lot of these benefits uh, until we find out. But how do we even find out if we're not? Uh, experimenting with these processes. So, so this is the hard stance. The other alternative, which is the approach taken in the United States uh, in most cases, is let's move ahead with this um, based on current information and then just let's just update as we go. So as we get more information about the risks uh, of latent health effects or whatever, we can update and tailor uh, the approach uh, to what is optimal. My concern with that And I think uh, why we can't just sort of ignore um, some of these local movements is that I don't know if we have the systems in place for those. So again, I I talk about why I don't think liability systems are going to cover these kinds of things. We know that's already difficult to prove causation. Toxic tort cases, incredibly difficult to get through. Um, I don't think insurance covers it. Again, the environmental specific liability insurance often excludes these kinds of delayed uh, harms, etc. So the only thing we sort of could have is monitoring and information about these uh, issues, and I think we need to see more of that. And I think that's something for communities uh, that communities we want to know about that their that their input about what they're seeing around, what kind of effects these are, that someone's actually looking at that, monitoring and calculating, and trying to see if there's something that emerges that could be causally linked think we do need to monitor to see, uh, to look at these downstream effects. I don't think that we should ignore those. And I think that the, the, with the goal being that this might actually affect what we think is, in light of this new information, the actual optimal level. I wanted to, to plug another uh, book that I, that I read, I think it was uh, two years ago now, by Daniel Raimi about uh, the fracking debate. And he actually visited these communities and talked to uh, folks on the ground and got their thoughts on what they think about the development and their thoughts on whether it's good and kind of summarizes a lot of the data. So I definitely recommend that for
0: those. And Caroline resources. has it in her hand. It looks it looks <laughs> relatively <laughs> slim. So I just so think it's, it's definitely it's readable. You should go check it out. It's very readable. I, I, I will tag you, Dan, write me when I when I uh, when I tweet this so that <laughs> you can appreciate the compliment. Um. Okay. Wonderful. Well, Caroline, I think we, I think that's all we have time for today. But I just want to thank you so much for talking about your wonderful articles. And I, I know you do so much in this area, so I look forward to talking to you more about your forthcoming work.
1: It is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>